Support for this podcast comes from the patrons at patreon.com slash Serlin. Welcome to Serlin on Game Design, episode one, Cocaine Logic. And my co-host is Aphotix. How's it going, everybody? Hey, so this is the very first episode. Uh, Isn't that exciting? Yeah, I'm super excited that we're finally getting this series going because I know for a while we've been dying to get our thoughts into a podcast. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I looked up uh, other episode ones like like Superman issue one sold for seven hundred forty seven thousand dollars. Great. I think we could easily break that. <laughs> OK, great. Maybe we could tell people who we are. So I am David Serlin and I'm president of Serlin Games. I've released several tabletop games like Yomi, Puzzle Strike, Flash Duel, and Pandante. I wrote the book Playing to Win. I wrote a bunch of game design articles at Serlin.net, and I have a background as a competitive fighting game player. And I am Matt Damasi. Uh, my handle, though, is Aphotix, or Aphotix, depending on how literate you are. My background is in competitive gaming. Since I was young, I played a bunch of different games competitively at very high levels. But mainly the way I know Serland is through being one of his lead playtesters, specifically on Yomi, but also, you know, I help out with his other games. Yeah, just excited to talk about game design. So let's talk about our first topic of game design, which I like to call cocaine logic because I don't know what else to call it. So let me explain what that is, and then we can kind of both give examples of how we've encountered it. Does that sound good? Yes. So cocaine is good, right? Because people want it. People want to pay for it and they keep buying it. So that means we should sell it in our restaurant. And if if I was a mayor of a town, then I should designate part of the town as the cocaine area because that's what people like, right? Isn't that, isn't that how it works? That is how it works. So that's not a very good argument. And it's because there's a good thing there that people want it, but there's bad things that we're not taking into account and we're we're just kind of glossing over and ignoring them. And that sounds like really obvious when I put it that way, but somehow this type of fallacy is so common. And I think it's one of the most common types of fallacies we hear from, from game players who want to give design suggestions. So it's like a real trap to fall into. So let me give some examples so you can understand like what this is. The, the first one I want to talk about is from chess because I think it, I think it's a good example because it lets you see kind of both sides of it. it. Lets you see why it's wrong, but also why someone might get tripped up by it. Okay. So let's say we were developing chess. Like there wasn't a, a game known as chess, and we're not done yet. And we come up with this new idea for a rule where when the pawn gets to the last rank, you can promote it and turn it into another piece. Okay. That sound cool. Yes. Yeah. And then we give it to the playtesters, and they say it's cool too. So we like the rule. And then after a while, people have been playing it and playing it. And then we say, wait a minute, how are, how did you actually play that? Like what specific rule did you use there? And then they tell us, oh, well, when the when the pawn's back there, just whenever you feel like it, uh, even several turns later, you could turn it into a different piece. And we say, oh, oh, God, we don't like that. So why why don't we like that, first of all? Do you have any opinion on that? Well, I mean, firstly, I mean, you're going to have issues with having to track when things happened or yeah. just not have it be concise. You know, you want things as elegant as possible. If If there's a single trigger that you can make happen for a rule... That's going to be much easier to follow than having it be something where, oh, you could kind of change your mind later or decide 
when uh, when else you could do it. Yeah, that's right. So some some problems or, or extra rules you need to add would be what if it's a few turns later? Can you do the, the upgrade piece at the beginning of your turn and then move a piece or do you have to do it afterwards? Can you do the the upgrade and then move that piece that you just added? Right. Also, what if you had two pawns or three pawns back there? Can you morph all of them at once or can you only do one per turn? Right. So that's just a bunch of garbage that you don't even want to have to deal with. Like why even add all those rules when, especially when it's like an edge case, you normally don't even want to do any of that. Right. You normally just want to get a new piece and be done with it. So it's really painful to add extra rules to accommodate that. Okay. So then we tell the play testers, uh, we don't like that. And then the rule is from now on, it's going to be that you have to upgrade the piece immediately. And they say the reaction they can't even help it is, oh, but what about the cases where the player wanted to wait? <laughs> right. Okay. This is a very common thing in playtesting. Yeah. Okay. If what they meant was, I want to know what all those cases are, I want a list of them, uh, of what's different before and after this rule change, because that way I know what changed balance wise. And I could test that to see if it broke anything. Like if they meant that, then okay. But no one ever means, no one's ever meant that in like the history of the world. What they mean is if there's some way, if there's some reason the player wanted to wait and we took it away, that's bad. Maybe we shouldn't take it away. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Do you have any, anything to say on that? Uh, example or yeah i mean pretty much what you said is exactly how it is and the thing to keep in mind when you're taking feedback from play testers is that they're coming at it from the perspective of a player they're not at most most importantly you know if you have good players they're coming at it from a perspective of trying to win at you know with whatever is available to them and they often react negatively when you take ability uh tools away from them to help them win so even if ultimately it's way better for the game, they'll even enjoy the game more. If you remove those extra things, they're still going to push back and say they don't like it because they're so used to using that tool to help them get some tiny advantage. Yeah, another way to think about it is I imagine someone who runs obstacle courses and they're so good at that and they're way into that. They're like a professional obstacle course runner. And then what they want to do is like remove all the obstacles because then that's better for the player. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And we're like, yeah, that right. That would help you win if we took out all your obstacles. But that's like, they're supposed to be thing. They're supposed to be a game. It's supposed <laughs> to be something to push back on, right? right? Or a different way to think about it is if someone in the chess example, like if someone complained that they should be able to say, upgrade their piece later because that would help them win or whatever. That's kind of the same. I think. I think it's analogous to saying. In Street Fighter, if reuse fireball, if I had a way to throw a fireball that was 10,000 times faster, that that would help me win. And we'd be like, yeah, it would. In both cases, those are like illegal moves that sh shouldn't exist right. and they would help you. <laughs> but if, but the part where it helps you is not it's not a reason. You, I think you really hit it on the head there when you say that players are so used to whatever helps me win is good that they can kind of lose track of. The difference between that and a good design. Right. Yeah, they don't when, when you have expert players who are you're trying to get feedback from, but they're maybe not that good at play testing or providing feedback. They're really only going to be focused with, well, how do I win? 
and using everything they can to win and they're not going to be able to realize when something shouldn't exist at all like that that's not really a question that's going to enter their head yeah so i wanted to give another example now and i think there might be listeners out there still thinking oh this isn't really a big deal like people aren't really gonna say that or fall for that and oh my goodness (laughs) i'm I'm telling you it is like one of the most common things so let's mix it in with a second fallacy Okay, which I I don't know. I don't have a name for this one, but maybe the depth fallacy, the wrong way to define what is depth. So let's say you're playing a game and you you like it, you're getting into it. And then you learn there's a new a new thing you can do and you didn't realize like a little trick or something. And that's cool. So now there's like a new thing you can do. Then some time goes by and you learn there's even another trick. And then you learn there's even some other trick. Like there's all these things you're learning. You keep learning new things. And so therefore the game is deep. Right. But that's. (laughs) Yeah. So why is that wrong? Well, firstly, just because there is more things to do doesn't actually mean the game is going to have more strategic depth. Actually, in a lot of cases, when you find things, especially unintended things that the developers didn't realize you could do or didn't intend for you to do, they often take away depth by becoming the only thing worth doing. And even in some case where it's not the only thing worth doing, it still might override more potential things that actually would be deep and replaces them with fewer things. So in both cases, or well, I mean, there's more cases than that, but in those two cases, you're actually removing depth instead of adding it. And also you're at the same time making the game less intuitive, making it harder to learn. So even if you did add depth with this, it's going to be less intuitive and people are going to have a hard time getting into it. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I I would go even further than than what you said, though, that you're saying sometimes it could remove depth. I wouldn't frame it that the default is that it would add depth. Like, we don't really know anything about what this would do. Right. right? It's, like it's, it's totally uncertain. It could just as well remove yes. depth. Like, the th- these things you're discovering could totally be more and more degenerate. So there's fewer and fewer real decisions in the game. And that ultimately, once you went way down the rabbit hole into this quote unquote depth, there just wasn't any decision right. left. Like that's it's the, because there's some trick that's just unbeatable or something. So it's it's totally wrong uh, <laughs> to think that that's what depth is. So I think that this concept gets wrapped up with cocaine fallacy. Yes. Always. I think, uh, in, especially in, in fighting games, I see this a lot. I mean, this is a, what I'm about to tell you is really pervasive amongst fighting game players is to say something like, um, what, what's a good, okay. Kara throws. So to let everyone know what that means, you can throw the opponent uh, in street fighter two by holding towards and heavy punch. In some other games you press two buttons to throw though. Okay. Two buttons. And what that does is it opens up the possibility of a Kara throw, which is like a little trick. So what you can do is you can do a move, not a throw, like a kick or something, that moves you forward. This move is like a lunge type thing or something that your character might have. But then you cancel that instantly, like a 60th of a second into it. But you move forward a little bit. You get the move forward properties of that of that move. You cancel it with the throw. So uh, you might hold towards in a certain kick and then one sixtieth of a second later, press two buttons to throw and the game will go, oh, you probably really meant to get a throw, so we'll just give you that. But will give you the movement property. So the net effect of all that is that you travel forward and throw. So you get like more throw range. So that's a little trick and it's better and you should always do it. (laughs) So there's no, 
there's no extra depth there. I mean, if that was a good thing, you would just give everybody more throw range and let let everybody throw in a simple way instead of a complicated way. Right. Yeah. And that's like tying into what I was talking about also. So not only is it not adding any more depth, but it's also reducing the accessibility of the game because now if I want to play a character who Kara throws, now once I discover that, I go, oh, so I'm actually not even doing the correct thing with something as basic as throwing. There's actually a complicated way of doing that. And that's a huge turnoff. You know, you want things to be as accessible as possible and not cryptic and, uh, you know, arbitrary like that. Right. Like the rule book says, press these two buttons to throw, but actually that's wrong. And if you do that, you're bad because you need to be doing this trick always. I'm trying to make sure people see the link between these two fallacies. So it's not adding more depth, even though some people say it does. But then there's also this cocaine logic going on where it's like, well, it helps me. So it's good. And someone says we should remove that. And there's this pushback like, no, no, we need to keep that because it's deep and good and helps me win. <laughs> yeah, what they, what they would say is that it helps differentiate. It is a phrase you hear a lot. It helps differentiate expert players from worse players. So what's your reaction to that? Is that the it depends on what you're trying to test in the game. If your goal. I mean, it's it's true. It, right? Yeah, no, like, it's, it's that's factually correct. It will having crazy things like that will increase the ability for expert players to beat worse players. However, it's doing it in such an arbitrary and ridiculous way that it's not even satisfying. And if rather than it being in the game and you discovering it, and then we have to decide whether to keep it or not, if instead it was never in the game and then someone proposed that as an idea, everyone would be like, that's crazy and ridiculous. But since it's already there, people automatically accept things that are already there and never want to get rid of them. But, uh, you have to realize that if it was never there, you would never want to add that. So why shouldn't we remove it then? And you've reminded me of, you've reminded me of the example of plinking in street fighter four. Uh, can you explain what that is? Or do you I know? do, but at this point I probably wouldn't explain it very well. So if you want to go ahead. Well, I probably wouldn't explain it well either, but okay. When the game first came out, I said that I really don't like that game for all sorts of reasons, but uh, the specific one that we're talking about right now, is I said that it just, the frame stats just happen to come down to there being a lot of one frame link combos. Like for whatever reason, that's just how the math ended up. Right. And also, I guess just to explain what that is to people, a one frame link combo means that in order for your moves to hit in succession, after you, after you get a one hit, you can combo more moves where the opponent won't be able to block them. And a one frame link combo means that you have one sixtieth of a second to hit the next button where it will continue hitting them without them being able to block it. Right. So if you waited two sixties of a second and then you hit the button, they would just, they would block and you wouldn't get a combo. And if you did it too fast, then your move wouldn't even come out. So you, you have to hit the next move in that very tiny window and it's just really frustrating. So I said, that's unfortunate. Those kind of combos existing is sort of inevitable. You could get rid of them by adding a buffer. That's a whole other topic. But anyway, like, I understand that it could happen, but it would just be better if everybody had an extra frame of hits done. <laughs> right. I mean, that's in the specific case of that specific game. I think that would help just because of how all the frame stats worked out. It, it would just end up that I think that doesn't create many new one frame combos, but it happens to get rid of it happens to make a bunch of existing ones into two. Okay, so I said that. And then a bunch of people told me that, that that's terrible and they hated that. 
and um, they like the skill of executing these really hard combos and that it separates the good players from the bad players. And so they don't like my idea. Yeah, all right. So we disagree. Then plinking is discovered. And plinking is a trick where um, when you press two buttons at once, like a medium punch and a light punch, the game has to give you one or the other of those. You can't do both at once. And so there's a priority system uh, where I believe it gives you, see, does it give you the lighter one or heavier one? It's been a I while since I... I believe it's the heavier one, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, well, yeah, I'm sorry to our viewers that we, I mean, I used to know all this. It's just, it's been a while and I haven't, uh, I'm not into playing this game. So anyway, it, it chooses one or the other. And you can use this as a trick to kind of get two inputs, press the button you want, and you can also plink the button you want by pressing two other buttons and then letting the priority system give you an extra shot at it. The, the specifics don't matter. The point is that it's a difficult, finicky, unintuitive, like buggy thing. And if you do it, you can, you can actually double your chance, basically getting two inputs instead of one, kind of like having two frames instead of one. And people really liked it. They're like, hey, I learned a new thing. So the game's deep and it helps me win. <laughs> So yep. it's the it's the depth fallacy and the cocaine fallacy, and it's so poetically perfect that what it does is exactly what I suggested. <laughs> right, <laughs> functionally, is to just why not just let anyone do that and add another frame of hit stun? Right, and also one thing that makes these examples extra bad is that they're strictly better. There's no reason not to always do these. So you are actually playing factually wrong if you don't do these all the time in all cases which is just ridiculous right. for someone to to pick up the game, say, hey, this game's fun. I want to start learning it. And then someone says, okay, well, you're not even doing the basic things like attempting a combo correctly. Here's how you're actually supposed to do. That will just completely throw most people off. We sometimes call that phenomenon an execution tax. Right. Execution right. tax, meaning that this is just what you said there, that uh, if, you, if you don't do it, you're playing wrong. So it, it turns things like throw into a complicated thing or hit A into hit B into a, a plinking thing. Uh, another maybe angle we should touch on is I give this ridiculous, silly example a lot about what if you hit the opponent and then the game paused and then you could bake a cake. There was like a <laughs> cake baking station you had. <laughs> right. And then you were judged on how well you did that. And then if you did really well at the cake baking, then you do a lot of damage in the game. Right. Uh, with your combo and so someone could say well I don't like that and then we could respond yeah but it really differentiates the players like the, the good players and the bad players are way different now because not everybody has the same cake baking skills right. so we we really magnified the, the differences in players and that would be factually true right, right yeah mean, no that it would increase the amount of skill you could use because now not only do you have to be good at the game you have to be good at baking cakes we, we vastly increase the amount of skill in the game yeah I, I hope people realize that 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 is factually true like there's no that's not an opinion or something because the only way that that statement would be false is if if at, if everyone in the world was exactly identical skill at cake baking then if you added cake baking it wouldn't separate them more <laughs> but of course everyone isn't so it must it necessarily must separate people more but you just intuitively, as a gut reaction, like you don't like it. You're like, that's stupid. Like, why, why are you baking cakes in this fighting game? And the reason you think that is because it has nothing to do with the essential nature of the fighting game. It has nothing to do with the skills that you 
quote unquote should be testing. And that's where all this argument comes from, I think, is right. what, what skills should you be testing? Right. And so some people would say, well, you should be testing the skills of uh, the one frame link. And I would say not. I'd say that there's a difference between a contested and uncontested skill. Uncontested means that it's you doing it by yourself, no matter what the other person does. Like you could just do it in your basement or alone or solitaire. Like bowling is like a, an uncontested sport. Right. Or golf. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. You're playing, you're bowling or playing golf. And what I, what I do doesn't affect you. It doesn't matter. And so that to me is not really interesting. I mean, it's I sort of, I mean, it's sort of interesting how good you are at those things, but for a competition, I, I like the interaction. I want to see, I want to see us really go against each other. Right. And so contested skills are, are interesting. Like my moves, what I do totally matters. And you have to take that into account. So most of fighting games are about that. Like if you throw a fireball, well, what am I going to do about it? If you throw fireballs in a certain way, I should jump over them or another way I should block for a while and then jump. And we're, we're really interacting there. And this stuff about one frame links and doing a difficult input to care throw. It's, uncontested it's just it's just like a boring thing you do so that's the specific reason why i think those are bad but other people seem to disagree i don't know what are your thoughts i'm pretty sure i mean i totally agree with what you just said and i'm pretty sure one of the reasons is that people don't question the things that are in the game when they first experience it much like uh, you know just when you're learning a game and you're learning how to play it properly Everything you learn, you just accept actually is beneficial for you to just accept everything as being a good idea. Like uh, what I mean by that is anything in this game is something that makes sense. And I shouldn't really question why it's there, because if I'm questioning why it's there, that's only going to inhibit my ability to learn it and inhibit my ability to win. But if instead I go, everything in this game is just great. I love it. And it all makes sense to me. I'm just going to focus on maximizing my ability to win within the, you know, the rules of the game, that is only going to benefit you as a player. And therefore it doesn't really, it's kind of uh, going against your purpose to question the things in the game that you're playing all the time. So people just tend to ignore those or even defend them because, well, I mean, I spent my time mastering them. So why shouldn't other people, that's just fair, right? I mean, I've spent the time learning how to plink and carrot throw. So why can't you do the same? And it's just a very defensive reaction that doesn't actually hold up to scrutiny, but it's just the way people feel about it and they don't ever question that. Yeah, you've reminded me of a book I read years ago and forgot the name of, but it's about exceptional children or, or genius children and, and what's, what's going on with them and what are the different types. And uh, this book divided them into four types, uh, which they called master, maker, and then the other two have to do with internal versus external, like knowing a lot about what's inside you versus knowing a lot about the, the community of the world, like Gandhi or something would might be the last one. Mm -hmm. And Virginia Woolf, who wrote very uh, personal stories, might have a good sense of the inside of her and be a, that type of genius of her own feelings and so right. forth. But the, the makers and masters is the thing that's relevant to us. And it, it mentioned a, a concept that you'd touched on there that I hadn't really thought of before reading it. Or it's saying that there's some type of person who's extremely good at something and the world knows about it when it's something the world cares about. Like, you know, if you're good at some sport, no one watches, right. then right. we right. just won't hear about it. Yeah. Right. But if you're good at something that 
that we care about, then you become more prominent, more well-known, and maybe you'll get better and better at, at this thing. And that then the, the maker, that's the master, they, they master right. something, but the maker is someone who rejects that is like fed up with the way that the thing worked and creates their new thing or creates a new field of study or something. And sometimes the, the maker can come from being a master. Like maybe they get very good at something and then say, well, there's all these flaws in this thing that I like, so I'm done with it. Sure. <laughs> and I'll make my own thing. I mean, I, I sort of relate to that because I think earlier in my life when I focused on being a master, focused on being really good at things, it's really a lot like you said, like I would, I would more uncritically accept badnesses. Right. Because, because like you have to, right? Yeah, the you, more you go against, like the more you question the game you're, or any activity really that you're trying to get good at, the more you question it, it's the harder it's going to be to want to devote yourself to it fully. So it just goes against you trying to master it if you question it all the time. Yeah. And the playing to win philosophy would be that you take advantage of anything that would help you win. And it doesn't really matter if the things that help you win are stupid things. Right. Right. You should do them. It doesn't care. I mean, yeah. if your goal is to win, you should do them anyway. So that's another way in which it helps to uncritically accept it all. Like, oh, do, uh, who cares that it's a stupid thing? Like, that's what I should do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, did you have any more examples? No, I think, I think we pretty much summed that up. I just thought of soul caliber. We love that example that, oh, sure. yeah. So yeah. There's a block button, so you hold that to block, and you can still be thrown. And then you can throw escape by pressing A or B. But the thing is, you can press A or B while you're blocking? Yes. And if they if they happen to throw you, you get a throw escape? Right. So that's an execution tax, right? Right. Well, I mean, beyond being just ridiculously bad design, it is also an execution tax. Right, yeah. So if you ever just hold block, you're, you're playing wrong. It's like objectively wrong, because there's no penalty to alternating between a and b and getting throw escapes right yeah <laughs> there was some other soul caliber thing too i forget or uh, the virtual fighter was another one if you do a sidekick uh that has a lot of negative frames uh frame advantage so the other player gets to act first and they very much might throw you and it's the same concept that you can enter throw escapes during your recovery right so, so you should because either you get throw escaped or there's no penalty and yep yeah, anytime, like, uh, I guess we could just provide a counterexample where even if something we don't necessarily like, at least there is a reason not to do it. For example, uh, also in Soul Calibur V, there's a mechanic known as Just Guarding, where if you tap the guard button, but also let go of it, so you can't hold it down, you have to just tap it very briefly before a move would hit you, you'll get an enhanced block where you'll get out of the blocks done faster, basically allowing you to uh, retaliate sooner. Um, even though we might not like that as designers or players, there is a legitimate reason not to attempt that because you have to let go of the button. So if you don't time it correctly, you will be hit. So it's not something you should just always try to do in all cases. So unlike these other examples we're talking about where you always should do them, uh, there are other uh, mechanics which might be similarly bad. However, they're not something you should strictly do every time. And it's worth differentiating between the two because... Uh, I think a lot of people might not realize that there's a difference between something like just guarding and something like uh, inputting throw escapes all the time when you're blocking, even though there really is. 
Right. There is a difference because there's a, a downside to the, the just guard. Uh, I don't object to the the high concept of the just guard. I think it, it just should have been tuned a little differently. It's kind of frustrating to do as a player, but it's not like, I mean, that's a way smaller objection, right? right. Than, yeah. <laughs> that the whole thing is wrong or something. Uh, well, what is your opinion on something where there there is no, well, hmm. I mean, I guess we just covered that, but I was going to say, Something where there's no drawback, but it's hard to do, which which is all these examples, right? But somehow, like, what if it's a dragon punch that's hard to do and you fail sometimes? Is that a proof to you that dragon punches shouldn't be hard to do? Um, well, I mean, I think that depends more on the context of the game, because in some games, it, it'd actually be preferable <laughs> if you were able to fail your dragon punch with some, with some you know, not, not, uh, not a negligible percent, because... It could reward more offense and allow the game to be more dynamic, but uh, it really would just depend on the game in question. For example, in Street Fighter 4, you pretty much can always Dragon Punch if you want to because they made the inputs really easy. And what you end up getting there is that when you are in a defensive situation, people always have to respect your ability to Dragon Punch because you're always going to get it out at all times. So that might not be a desirable thing. However, trying to make that less consistent can lead you down to, to some sketchy situations where you either make the execution really hard or you add some kind of random chance in the game's code to make you fail, even if you do it right, which players would definitely not accept, even if the gameplay improved. Yeah, there's a some kind of paradox going on there where let's say that the game works like this. There is a chance. It's difficult to do. And so there's a chance to fail because you just you're not perfect. OK. In that kind of game, which Street Fighter 2 is maybe an example. Sure, yeah, I think that's a fair example. Especially uh, not HDR when you cleaned up the inputs a bit. But in <laughs> Super Turbo, like, I yeah. suck at doing dragon punches in that game. So because of that, when someone does a media attack, which means an attack against a knockdown player as they're getting up, if I do a media attack against you, several things might happen. But one of the possibilities is that I'll hit you. Is that I'll hit you. If we then change your change the game to let the dragon punches be very, very easy to do. That outcome would never happen because either you would dragon punch me and I wouldn't hit you or you would decide not to dragon punch and you'd block. And I also would not hit you. I just wouldn't hit you. So right, that means, never happen. so that means that I shouldn't like when I decide whether I want to do a media attack, I still might want to do it. But when I'm deciding that I want to do it a lot less than if, one of the outcomes was hitting you as actually hitting you with that type of attack is one of the most powerful upsides I can get because it, it can lead to the best combos. So it's sort of sad that offense doesn't have any, I mean, I, yeah, you gotta, you gotta mix in highs and I'm sorry, overheads and lows to make that work. But um, you kind of wish that sometimes the media attack would just hit. <laughs> right. And it's exactly right. what you said where, if that's your goal, then one way is to make it really hard to do. But then we just kind of went through this whole discussion about how that's bad. Then a different way is imagine that we recorded the how the best Street Fighter 2 players play and we found that 5% of the time they missed their dragon punches. And then we put in a random code that just made you... It's totally easy to do, but you miss 5% of the time. That would actually be better because <laughs> everybody's experiencing the same game. Right. Right. The, the beginner misses at 5%. The expert doesn't get any bonus for cake baking. Like, right. Uh, you know, doesn't get any bonus for 
uncontested skills that don't have anything to do with strategy. So yeah, it, it would be quote unquote better, but everyone would hate it. What's actually the funniest to me about all that is that the one way out of that paradox would be if you added randomness, but you didn't tell anyone. Right. And that's kind of actually what Street Fighter 2 does. It feels like it's skill, but the code underneath is so complicated. There's so many little nuances that it's it does not work at all how you would imagine. Right. You picture it cleanly treating each 60th of a second in the same way, and that's not true. There's some 60th of a second where it doesn't actually check the inputs during that entire window. Only a fraction of that 60th of a second is it even looking. So that that means that it's uh-huh. now possible for uh-huh. you to fail because of randomness that you had no idea was even there. The wrong part of the frame. The r- yeah, you did it during the wrong fra- fragment of a 60th of a second, right? Yeah, so the joke is that they actually have done this. And even to this day, people just don't really know that or get that, that there is some randomness there. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I think it's, uh, I mean, that that same type of extrapolation can be seen all over the place where if something is too hard to do all the time, that there essentially is just a, a chance you'll fail just based on your human error. And then you took that same percentage and made it just RNG based, random number generation. So it's the same outcome in terms of how often you're going to get it, how often you're not. But in one way, people feel like they're in total control of it, even though they're really not. And in the other way, they feel like they're totally, it's totally out of their hands, even though you're going to have the same results. People despise when it's, when it feels out of their hands and will totally accept it if it seems in their control, even if it's the same outcome in both cases. Yeah. Yeah. This is a a whole other ball of wax or something about, about randomness and how people perceive it and how backwards that is. I don't know if we want to get into that. We could. I think we could. I mean, we, we got time. Support for this podcast comes from patrons like you at patreon.com slash Serlin. You can become a patron and support the development of more finely tuned Serlin games, as well as more content on this podcast. And if you do, you get access to a sneak peek at art that's in development and playtest materials for upcoming games. You also get access to a special second podcast where you can hear behind the scenes of how we actually solve design problems. That's patreon.com slash Serlin. If I told you that I had a game that had no hidden information and no randomness, so like a turn-based, like chess, for example. Sure. Uh, I, I mean, I had a, let's say I have a different game in mind, but it has the same properties as, as chess and that it's all perfect information. If I told you that, I think most people's first reaction would be, oh, so it's like a skill-based game, right? It's a skill game. Uh, And then if I said, okay, I've got this other game and random things happen, like at the beginning you randomly set up some tiles. And so, you know, sometimes it's one way or sometimes it's another. Or uh, there's some dice rolling somewhere in the middle of it, whatever, any, you know, Anything like that. Or maybe there's no randomness, but there's a double blind thing going on where I have some hidden cards and you have hidden cards and we both play one simultaneously. So at the moment I choose, I don't know what you chose. That's not random. That's how the card game Yomi works, of course. It's not random, but it's also not perfect information. So So if I told you about that I had a game like that, then a lot of people's reaction is like, oh, so it's less skill based. So why, 
why is that wrong? <laughs> what do you think about, about well, these Well, firstly, <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's a bunch of different things you could say about that. But <laughs> yes, one there thing, are a bunch of different things. The first thing I would point out is that risk management and understanding how to deal with multiple outcomes is definitely a skill and quite a difficult and interesting one. You know, determining whether your move fails or not, or, you know, whatever the case may be, and then deciding if it's worth doing, whether it's worth attempting because you might get outcome X, Y, or Z, and then deciding whether that's something worth doing or not, is certainly an interesting skill. Uh, that'd be the first thing I'd object to because risk management is possibly the most interesting thing to me as a player in most games I play. Right. So what you're saying there is that by having some randomness, there's a new type of skill that can exist that cannot exist in the other system. Right. Sure. Yeah, that's... There's, that's one of so many points you can make, so go on. <laughs> okay, maybe you want to give the next one, and I'll, I'll give it one after that. Oh, uh, I'm overwhelmed with because this whole thing is just a big mess. <laughs> yes, yes it is. Another reason why it's bad to say that um, increasing randomness reduces skill beyond just risk management. Another reason is that in a game with no randomness, it's very possible where you don't have to make very many decisions or any at all. For example, tic-tac-toe, there's no randomness. It's all perfect information and there's actually no game. It's just all predetermined. You should, you could very easily memorize a chart of what to do in each case. And you are not really having to use any skill at all because you should just follow this given pattern that has already been solved, uh, but ahead of time. Yeah without you having to try it all. You could just play perfectly all the time. And even in a game where it's too complicated for you to play perfectly all the time, there's still going to be a lot of cases where you don't actually have to try. All you have to do is remember this sequence, this pattern, whatever it might be, to get you through some, most, almost all of the game, where you're actually not using your brain for most of the game until there's a few uncertain situations that you've never experienced before, in which case it's not all that different from a game that has randomness because you're having to navigate through things that are uncertain. Even if it's all public, it's too complicated for you to comprehend. So you're actually kind of relying on chance, even though it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. Let me turn that into two separate points. So what you just said. So one of the points is that it's just kind of a cheap rhetoric trick to lump like every type of non-random game and every type of random game like sure. into just two categories like that's that's hiding a bunch of relevant stuff because the non-random one the one that sounds like it's so skilled includes tic-tac-toe yeah so you're like oh wait i guess i guess we can't just make sweeping generalizations like that <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like oh it's not random so it's skill-based okay well tic-tac-toe isn't so we actually have to look at the game itself to see if it's skill-based you can't just like condemn the whole category like that and likewise, a game that has randomness could be totally stupid. It could be just like roll a die and even you win and odd I win. Or it could be very strategic and involve risk management and interesting. Uh, so that's one point. Then the uh, second point that's that's related in there is, and I think this is the this is the real crux of all this. You could read a little bit more about this in my article on Serlin.net called Solvability. And it's the idea that if the game is the first kind, the, the kind with no hidden information, uh, no randomness, and it's turn-based, so there isn't even, there's no time pressure either, uh, and no execution, nothing you can mess up, then it's solvable, right? I mean, it's 
there's a solution. There's a certain way to play it. That's the best. And if you knew that, if you knew that, then there wouldn't be any strategy left. And so you could say, well, if it's a complicated game like chess, it's not known. So it's okay. And it's strategic. And that's kind of right. But it's not really binary. It's not like we don't know anything about chess and then now it's completely 100% solved. There's a, there's, there's a spectrum there and we're getting closer and closer and closer to solving it over time. So there's many different endgame situations that are solved. And, and when you're in one of those, there's, no, there's just no, literally no thinking. I mean, you just execute the memorized thing. Uh, also, the set of openings, like the set of all possible openings you could ever do is really large. But most of them are just known to be terrible. So you shouldn't do those. You should, I mean, ultimately, maybe there's only one opening. We haven't reached that point. But we do know that there's this finite set that you should probably do. So we're kind of zeroing in on fewer and fewer decisions <laughs> as chess matures. And experts like Capablanca and Bobby Fischer, they were really frustrated by that. That's uh, This is a kind of argument about why why I made chess 2 to recapture what it is that players like that wanted. They said that as they learned chess, there was a lot of improvisation and doing what's smart at that moment and using fundamental principles to decide what to do and ha- you know having better fundamentals than the opponent, uh, having more tricks here and there, but that that became less and less part of the game as they became better and better because more parts of the game were replaced with memorization. Uh, and that's what you get when you have a completely solvable game. It's, it creeps towards fewer and fewer uh, decisions over time. That isn't really as true for a game with a mixed solution. Did you want to talk about that a little bit and then I'll jump in? Uh, sure. So basically, when you have a mixed solution, it means that on any given turn or any given play, there's not it means you have randomness first oh, of all, yes, right? Yes, there there must be some sort of unknown information, or hidden information, yeah, or some kind of hidden information involved. And basically, what a mixed solution is is uh, when you have multiple different things, multiple different choices or uh, like options, let's say, multiple different options that you should do some percentage of the time. So it's not just oh, one hundred percent of the time I will attack, or you know whatever the game might be. But instead, it's, well, some percentage of the time I should attack, some percentage of the time I should block, and another percentage of the time I should throw. And those are going to be more dynamic because of the hidden information involved or the randomness involved. And you have to think on your feet more because it's not simply something you can memorize ahead of time. You have to analyze each given game state and situation to figure out how much of each move you should do. And... I think one reason that players reject that is because it feels that, oh, well, I, I, in my head, I had the right idea of how much to do each thing, but it didn't work out for me. And that's not fair, even though that's kind of just a lack of understanding of how the system works in general. And also the fact that in many games, I mean, not true of all games, for example, Texas Hold'em is a game where you could play incredibly well the whole time and still lose. But in most games that have random elements, you can play very well and you will do very well because the game is set up in such a way where you have enough attempts at these mixed solutions where you, 
if you are constantly making good decisions, even if the randomness doesn't always go in your favor over the course of the game, you're going to end up ahead because of making these appropriate decisions and using your valuation skills constantly each turn. Yeah. So let's go a little deeper to explain why that's what you were saying is true there. First of all, let let me define again what we mean by the mixed solution in case people are confused there. So a pure solution, which is what chess has, is a very long, complicated list of exactly what you should do in every situation. Okay. So it it could be unbelievably long or something because there's so many possibilities. But if you had this, this cheat sheet, you would just do what it says. And that's all you would ever do. Then a mixed solution is similar and that it's also a big long list of everything you should do in every situation. But when you look up a particular situation and you try to figure out what the cheat sheet tells you to do, it doesn't have just one thing. It has do this 20%, do this 30% and so on. So at first glance, you'd say they're the, they're the same. They're both as degenerate. Once you have them, there's nothing to the game, right? Like once you have the mix solution, you just follow the cookbook and then roll the dice instead of not rolling the dice. So I know that some people think that, but that's not correct. And the reason it's not correct is because of uh, something called donkey space, which is a term coined by Frank Lance, who's an NYU professor, uh, who also plays poker. That term means playing suboptimally on purpose. And that exists, that's a thing that you do in mixed solution games, and it's not a thing you do in pure solution games, except for there's some weird corner cases, but let's just say that you don't, you don't do them. Okay, so let's see. Help me out here. Are you, are you following this so yeah, far? Or? Yeah. So basically, the idea of donkey space is that when you're using a mixed solution, like let's say it's for the, the specific turn you're on or the specific decision you have to make, it's known that... 30% of the time you should do A, 40% of the time you should do B, 30% of the time you should do C. Well, it's possible that even though that is the optimal solution, which is the one that is the least exploitable, even in that case, no matter what decision or no matter what range of options you're playing, it's possible that I can do something that's normally suboptimal to exploit your decision. If like, for example, you told me exactly uh, how likely you were to do each option, I could devise something that is superior to that because I know yeah. what you're going to do. Yeah, let me uh, help explain with paper, rock, scissors since it's so simple. So if I was going to play paper, rock, scissors against you and my plan was to play rock 80% of the time, 80%, that's pretty high. So you could pick up on that and you could exploit it. So you could play paper a lot more than you normally would, right? And then you'd you'd uh, beat me a lot. Right. So then I might say, well, I don't like that he's doing that, so I'm going to change my strategy and I'm going to play uh, rock less than that. And maybe I played 70% and you still exploit me. Well, at some point, the, the, there's some way to play where you can't exploit me. No matter what you do, like you can't exploit me more. <laughs> and, the, and that's uh, if I play 33, 33, 33% of each option. It, it kind of doesn't matter what, like you can't, you can't get any extra percentage on me. I'm least exploitable right there. So the first level thinking, which is wrong, is to say, and now we're done. Now, every time I ever play paper, rock, scissors, I'm going to do 33, 33, 33. And it's just as stupid as tic-tac-toe, which has a pure solution. So 
The reason that's wrong is that if I enter a tournament of tic-tac-toe, I really should just follow the, the cheat sheet. Like there's no trick. But if I enter a paper, rock, scissors tournament, what if I play against a bad player? Someone who plays rock 80%. What about someone who plays rock a hundred percent? They play rock a hundred percent. And is my strategy really going to be this 33, 33, 33? Cause that means there's a 33% chance I'm going to lose. I'm going to get knocked out of the tournament by this horrible player. And other people who entered this tournament, they see the 100% rock guy and they're like, okay, obviously I'm going to play paper and they're going to beat him. They're going to have a much higher percent chance of surviving that tournament round than me. So playing least exploitably, that's nice, but that doesn't mean best chance to actually win. Best chance to actually win is who best exploits the opponents. And then you could say, oh, well, everybody would play optimally, but that's not real. That is not how you you will not enter any tournament where everyone plays optimally. <laughs> Even in a game as simple and as obvious as rock, paper, scissors, if you took a game where that's much more complicated with much more different uh, decisions and information involved, there's absolutely no chance that everyone's going to be playing optimally or even close to it. Right. Yeah. We see that, that thinking from some, some people are very analytical and mathy and a little overly reductionist, like wanting to simplify out everything. They're like, Oh, well, everyone will play optimally. So we're done. Okay. But that's not real. (laughs) So that's why games like poker or Yomi or any mixed solution game are still very interesting even as we start to close in on solving them. And I mean, we're nowhere near, Yomi is extremely, comp- would be extremely complicated to solve. Like there's so many situations and variables that, I mean, no one's going to know the least exploitable thing to do in every situation. It's like inconceivable that it would ever happen in our lifetimes. Poker, it's getting pretty close, but even that it's like really difficult. There's zero abilities in poker and even getting the right probabilities there is pretty right. hard because of so many situations. So you will play people who play suboptimally to wildly different degrees, sometimes on purpose to bait the opponent. And that's what donkey space is. It's the, it's playing suboptimally on purpose so that you can exploit someone else who's playing suboptimally, maybe because they have an imperfect understanding of the game, or maybe because they're dancing with you in donkey space. It's, it's hard to say, uh, you know, which is happening at any given time. Uh, but that's what that is. And so to come back to our original point, if I told you that a game had hidden information and so on, then if you knew all of this stuff, you'd say, well, okay, first of all, I don't know anything about, I can't really say anything about the game you've described because the game you described could be a stupid, just flip a coin game. Right. Sure. <laughs> uh, but then on the other hand, I, I can't, okay. So I can't give it a pass, but on the other hand, I can't, veto it either because it has the possibility of having this donkey space stuff with a mixed solution when no matter how solvable it gets like there's still gameplay left it, it, it could have new skills like risk management it could be really good but that is not it doesn't seem to be the perception of most players that's most players seem to think the opposite where when they hear that there's no hidden information no randomness that that sounds like the skill based thing. And the, it's like the jokes on them because that's the, that's the thing that ultimately has no skill once it's solved. Right. So that's very frustrating as a designer. Yeah, Cause like, so Yomi is 
designed the quote unquote right way and that it's more resistant to being solved. But then the average player might think it's just so random and or something uh, and right. might prefer like, oh, well, why can't it be turn based? And you 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 do what you do and I do what I do. And our cards are all known and there's you know nothing hidden and no random it would be so so skill based. But it actually would, it would be difficult for that if we took Yomi and made it just take turns somehow. Like, it's hard to see how that wouldn't be solved in, like, a week on our forums. <laughs> sure. I don't know. I don't have a point. It's just frustrating. Right. I mean, it's just it's just talking about the different perceptions that gamers have and, you know, trying to, I don't, I don't know if educate is the right word, but just trying to show the people that you can have a game that seems random but actually has a lot going underneath it that actually will make it a better game for you to play competitively in the long term. Yeah. Well, I think that's... That's all we have to say on that subject for now. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we covered it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, did you, any um, any last words? No, I'm pretty sure that we discussed a lot of great things today, and certainly things that I have only learned in the last few years that beforehand would have been I've been totally oblivious to. But now, after seeing them and recognizing them, really helps me think about games, especially from a designer perspective, in a more productive way. Yeah. So we covered. Uh, cocaine logic and a whole bunch of examples there and then solvability in games a mixed solution versus pure solution and um kind of the, the fallacies of of thinking of that can be said there yeah depth and randomness and so on so maybe, maybe this will help people think about this stuff in a in a more nuanced way if, right. if this is if this is new to them right all right well until next time i'm david serlin thanks for listening everybody <laughs> i'm products take care and now for a special segment where we meet Garcia 1000. Uh, hello everyone, I'm Garcia 1000. Hi, Sterling. Hi, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Great, I'm honored to be a, to be a guest on this uh, show because uh, uh, I'm honored. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, so I, I've heard you have many opinions and you also like opinions of other people. Is that Oh, correct? yes, that's true. Uh, I, I think uh, opinions are the most interesting thing in life. And uh, today I'd like to share my opinions about a game I've recently played. And then I'm also looking forward to everyone else's opinions. So uh I guess the game I've been playing is called uh, Clicker Heroes. It's be basically a better version of uh, Diablo 3. So, uh, and, and another thing is that you can even play it uh, on, on, online on the web. Uh, in fact, you're forced to play it online on the web, which is even better. So, uh, Yeah, I've, I I've guess, played it. I know it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, Southern has been playing it with me uh, for several days and... And we both uh, like it very much. Uh, I guess, should I give a, a brief uh, overview of how the game works? Yeah, okay. It's not too complicated, so <laughs> you could explain it. <laughs> okay, sure. So uh, basically, uh, the game is uh, you role play as a brave uh, adventurer going out into new unknown lands. And you click on enemies, and then you get gold. And, and you spend the gold on buying more things that lets you buy even more gold. So uh, uh, basically, you can even buy things that get you gold while you're not playing the game. Uh, so uh, this type of game is in a category called incremental games. Uh, the main attraction of these is that the amount of gold and the amount of power you have keeps on going up all the time. 
And uh, apparently that's really fascinating because uh, I know a lot of people have been playing it recently. Yeah, well, when you when you click and then you get more gold and more damage, then you could do like a hundred times more damage, right? Yeah, and then yeah. and then like a thousand times, and you think that's pretty exciting, and then it's like ten thousand times, and it yeah, keeps it, going it, to like a like a million, billion, yeah. trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, like it keeps going. Yeah, the numbers are just so large. It's so you never uh, get bored, yeah. right? Because the numbers keep going up. Yeah, and they don't go up slowly either. The numbers go up really quickly. So it's 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 like uh, you're in a race car and and you know you're like at three hundred kilometers per hour. Wow! And then and then next time you're at like a thousand kilometers per hour. And then like soon you've broken the speed of light and it's still going faster. So it's it's just so fun. That's what it's like, huh? It's like a race car when you play Clicker Heroes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like a race car that keeps getting faster all all the time. So I'm very busy with my work, uh, mm. and I take a break sometimes to play games, like sometimes Diablo 3. But Clicker mm. Heroes, I could play pretty much while I'm working. Like maybe I'm waiting yeah. for you know the computer to do something for 30 seconds, and I could, I could go over to Clicker Heroes and click something. So I've been able to play it even while I'm working without really interrupting my work. Yeah, that's the greatest part of Clicker Heroes, is that uh, even... Uh, when you're not playing, it keeps on going. So it doesn't sense, need you. Yeah, yeah. that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. The feeling is like you're the CEO of a big company, and you have all these <laughs> other heroes working for you. Like even even when you're enjoying a martini or something. So uh, it's so in that sense, it's definitely not a Skinner box, which is uh, something people don't like. Uh, so uh, just briefly, a Skinner box is where you're addicted to a game because of uh, how it manipulates your brain. But this game is totally not like that because it keeps on going when you're not even uh, playing it. So, uh, so uh, it's, well, it's a, healthy. Yeah. The Skinner box has an interesting question about whether Clicker Heroes is a Skinner box. Because on, on the one hand, it is because you're clicking to make numbers go up. And that's like a classic Skinner box game mechanic. But then on the other right. hand, yeah, that's... Yeah that's all there is so it's right i mean so it's it's not it's tricking the, you to do yeah. another thing because of the numbers like the game it, is yeah. the numbers exactly it's it's like investment like the whole point of investment is seeing numbers go up so uh, this game i'd say it's more like an investment simulator than a skinner box oh. no one would say investing is a skinner box right i'd actually never thought about that that's yeah, it is right. Yeah. I mean, investing is not a Skinner box, and in investing, right. numbers go up, and that's the point. There's, it's not uh, surrounding another game, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, you don't that's invest good. in order to to make your your character stronger or or get like collect a a whole set of items or something, right? You're rewarded for your patience. You feel like you're doing something. Yeah, uh, you know, another connection to Diablo is uh, when Clicker Heroes. Well, I won't. I don't want to say when it was new, but when it was new to us, uh, I was playing Diablo and then I played Clicker Heroes at the same time. So I was playing both at once. Like I'd pause. Oh a little, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I pause Diablo a little bit and then do some clicks, but then you know it doesn't need me anymore, and go back to Diablo. Yeah, that was pretty fun. I could play two games at once. But then <laughs> as more time went on, I just stopped playing Diablo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Because it, you know, Diablo is sort of like. Like a Skinner box, it's sort of addictive, and so that's that's kind of bad. And 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 this game isn't. 
because you know when you're playing Diablo, you're 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 just grinding all the time, like like killing the same monsters all day. And yeah, but not and in Clicker Heroes, right? <laughs> yeah, not in, no way, not in Clicker Heroes. You're always fighting new monsters with uh, new backgrounds and. <laughs> and uh, well, anyway, so uh, so I yeah, so I think this is great in that it this game lets you quit Skinner boxes, so it's better. It's a negative Skinner box, I'd say. Um, well, yeah, yeah well, I for... think this game, yeah, it's better than going to school or going to college. You learn you learn more from this game than you do from from education. I think you learn more from this than you would going to college. That yeah, we could yeah, that's an interesting test. We should uh, get some college students and. And ask about that. Yeah, you could have an experiment where you have someone play this game for four years, or maybe they go to college. <laughs> four years. <laughs> but, but you know, uh, anyone who can play for four years will be have a lot of grit. They'll be really patient, and they'll be able okay. to stick with something, which is they'll also be what good at optimizing. Really want. Yeah, yeah, they'll be patient and very good at optimizing things. Yeah, yeah, that's another thing. So, um, so I think this is basically the, the probably the best game in the world uh and and so yeah if anyone has opinions on that i'd i'd like to know too but that i'm just sharing my opinion on this today yeah well thanks for discussing that i just have one more kind of subtopic about clicker heroes before you go Sure. yeah so i'm wondering are we bad for playing this game that there's really not much to it and it's like shallow? Like we could be developing other kinds of skills if we played like RTS games or fighting games or MMOs even, like social skills in one or competitive skills in another. And there kind of isn't, there's no push or pull with an opponent. And I don't mm. know, is it, uh, I, is it bad I, yeah. that it's so lacking and that we're, is it like popcorn we're gorging ourselves on? Right. Yeah, I I understand uh, what what you're getting at. Uh, some people might say this game is a bit shallow and it uh, doesn't teach us skills that we need uh, to survive in the world. Um, <laughs> Do you think that's the criteria <laughs> of a good game? Like, like Street yes, Fighter I, uh, is good because of the skills that you can get to survive. Right. I in mean, the world. Street Fighter teaches you a, a, a competitiveness and and fireballs. And, uh, and- uh, and fireballs and, and like punching someone from really far away, right? But this game doesn't do that. Uh, on the other hand, what it does do is I think it's good for anyone who wants to uh, go into management, consulting, or business especially. Uh, because not only are you watching numbers go up, but you're learning how to manage uh, your your employees. You know, uh, sometimes you need to give one employee encouragement and you might give another employer encouragement, and maybe some of them are are really um, not that good on themselves, but they're good team players because they help the team as a whole. So you can't ne- neglect those other people. Uh, but there are some uh, in the end. You might find there are a few star employees, and so you need to give them the appropriate amount of uh, gold or compensation. So I think it's uh, although it might not be uh, a, re- a very broad education it does give a very accurate representation of some areas of life so i wouldn't yeah. recommend playing just this game but i'd say it would be a good game in a well balanced uh meal uh, buffet of games <laughs> yeah. it also helps with time management maybe because there's different oh, strategies yes, yes. you can take in the game and one strategy it might be very good if you play very actively and you click a lot and you never miss your cooldowns. And then a different strategy might 
uh, emphasize you know, not doing that. And you yes, have to make yes. a decision ahead of time. You're like, Oh, well, which, which path should I take? And then if you took the path where you'd have to click a lot, which, which is totally valid, but if you did that, but then it turns out that you never really click much. Cause you kind of forget oh. about the game. See, then you oh, manage so your time poorly. You predicted your own performance poorly. And then you learned. Yeah. Something. Yeah. You have to learn foresight, which might be the most valuable skill of all. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I think we've really enlightened people about just how much there is to Clicker Heroes. Yeah, great. I'm, I've, yeah, this is uh, what a great discussion, and and yeah. and so I'm glad people can can learn more about it. Yeah, you have a very interesting opinion, so I hope that next time you can come back and give us some other opinions on something else. Great, I'd be delighted to. Thank you, Seth. Okay, well, take care. Okay. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Bye. Bye.